Okay, so I'm here with Adam Cheng, who's been one of our keynote speakers at the Australasian Simulation Congress this year in 2016. And uh, Adam, welcome. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are, quite aside from being the guru of all things simulation debriefing. Hi, Vic. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, um, it's it's been fantastic here in Melbourne. Um, I'm from Calgary, Canada, where I've been there for about six years now. I'm a pediatric emergency physician, and in my role there, I oversee our research program that's run out of the Simulation Center, uh, Kids Sim Simulation Program. So yeah, very excited to be here in Melbourne and get to see the city and uh, meet some amazing people. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's been a great uh, Congress all round. Uh, Adam is a prolific publisher of all things debriefing, but I think this conference you've concentrated on translating that into actually getting people better at doing it and I think that's probably a pretty big leap. Uh, the thing I did with you which I was very fortunate to be involved with was your Pearl's debriefing workshop. Tell us a little bit about what you see as that leap between knowing what a good debrief is and then being able to do it and then how you design your workshop around that. Yeah it's a really interesting question Vic. Um, you know sometimes I think a lot of people as debriefers are doing great things in the debriefing and it's just a matter of being able to recognize and label the things that they're doing. And so uh, Walter Epic, who's a good friend and colleague of mine from Northwestern University, um, the author, first author of the Pearls paper, you know, in writing that paper what we tried to do was to make actions very explicit and label things. And you know, as we were teaching at workshops and conferences, we noticed people were doing like very natural things, adapting their debriefing style to specific contexts, to learner groups, to situations. Uh, yet they couldn't, couldn't put an exact finger on why they were doing it that way and what specific strategies were indicated in particular situations. So all we did was, I think, we made the implicit explicit, so to speak, uh, by labeling and grouping educational strategies, and then just providing a little bit of guidance on when these strategies should be used. And so I think that's a huge step, is to be able to be very deliberate at applying specific strategies during methods, and to be thoughtful about those, and then afterwards, reflecting, reflecting back on how successful the application of those strategies were during the debriefing. Mm. Yeah, and I think that is the golden aim for us, isn't it, to really have an idea about how we go. Um, and so we'll post uh, the links to the papers and to Adam's wonderful website, Debrief to Learn, in the show notes. And uh, I think for me, Adam, the things that really came out were a sense of freedom, like actually there is multiple ways of doing this, but also the guidance about trying to diagnose when is the situation to use a certain technique uh, and thinking hard also about one of the things you mentioned in your lecture yesterday about using scripts and how that might make a difference. Um, did you want to sort of just elaborate on those couple of points? Yes, it's funny you bring up the notion of scripts. And so you know, the work that we did dating back to 2007 and starting with the Express study, you know, we were trying to tackle this problem of standardization of debriefings uh, within huge programs or series or groups of programs, for example, the American Heart Association. And so we thought the use of a script might help to standardize the quality of debriefing, bring people as debriefers together to utilize one standardized method. Uh, and although we found that there were positive effects associated with the use of scripts, and also we believe that there are positive effects 
associated with the use of scripts as a faculty development tool in training, not just for use during debriefing, but also in training. Uh, I do think it's important to keep in mind that people need to still speak in the way that they would normally speak. We don't want debriefers to come across as robotic and so tightly scripted that they only ask questions in one or two ways. Because then what happens is, you know, the authenticity of the conversation is lost and the learners can pick up on that. You know, the best part about a debriefing is to have a real conversation with your colleagues, whether they're a facilitator or one of your your colleagues as learners. And so if the facilitator is using the exact same scripted language every time, I'm not so sure that that's good. So I would just throw that caveat in there. Um, you know, Walter and I would encourage learner or debriefers to find their own voice, so to speak. So find your own voice, be comfortable in your own shoes, and then blend that and mix that with some of the scripted language on that suggested, particularly if you're a novice debriefer. And so, you know, the script is purely a guide. And once you become comfortable with specific methods or strategies of debriefing, I think you can put it aside. Uh, but then again, if you find yourself struggling a bit, you might want to bring it back and just have it at your side or on your lap during a debriefing so you can refer to it intermittently. So, so we do, I do feel that the scripts are quite a powerful faculty development tool, um, but as you gain more and more confidence as a facilitator, I think you know, we really encourage people to find their own voice and add their own style, so to speak. Yeah, sort of keep it as a self-rescue technique. Right. Uh, so you've been to the conference and you've also attended quite a lot of sessions of people presenting from locally and interstate. Um, any exciting thoughts that you've seen while you've been here that you think are bubbling up for the future? You know, yesterday both you and I were in a session uh, where it was a research session, three different presentations. Um, I was quite excited to be there. Actually, the first session was about the utilization of simulation uh, for a laboratory medicine, which was completely completely outside of the box, thinking, um, you know, the the young lady who was up there presenting did a wonderful job of presenting her project, describing how she used um, a simulation to engage laboratory medicine trainees and doing biopsies and even doing the interpretation part of of uh, looking at slides and making diagnoses. So I thought that was really intriguing and I always love to see the application of simulation outside the context, the traditional context. Uh, and then of course the work that you're doing and you know, perhaps rethinking the notion of simulation programs uh, as a service as opposed to a program, a service to the hospital as a whole and addressing the patient safety and quality improvement needs of units throughout the hospital. And so I, I, I do think that you know, it's really important for simulation programs to do work that addresses, directly addresses patient needs within institutions. And so I do think you're on to something there, and it's just a matter of uh, defining how to prioritize what the most important things are mm. you know, when simulation programs are often limited yep. by resources. Mm. Right? And then, of course, the last one was a, a project uh, from a group who were interested in defining the role of scripted debriefing uh, for a very large rural outreach pediatric resuscitation training program with over 400 rural instructors, they're delivering this course, you know, once a week throughout the year. So a huge program, and, and they're really looking to do some innovative stuff to build on the idea of scripted debriefing and to assess, hopefully, whether or not it improves debriefing performance, but also whether or not that can correlate to improved clinical performance in the learners. So really excited to 
see what the results of their study will be. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff, although I noticed Adam did use words like ambitious when he was commenting on it. Uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you about, uh, which probably heaps of our listeners have already had a good look at, but Debrief to Learn only launched uh, in the last month, a real one-stop shop for resources and things related to debriefing. Massive effort. Uh, tell us about your hopes and dreams for it. Yeah, so Debrief to Learn really, you know, the whole purpose behind that and the goal behind that is to provide, you know, a community where people can interact with each other, share resources, share ideas, share successes. Um, we wanted a place for educators, researchers, administrators to go to one place where they can go to to get everything they needed related to feedback, debriefing, and simulation. And so it's a fairly new website right now. We're in the midst of developing content. Real fortunate to have folks like yourself and others um, who are experts, known experts in the field, participating and contributing to the development of both the vision for the website, uh, the look of the website, and the content. And so we really encourage people to go there, take a peek, uh, let us know what you're interested in seeing, uh, what you'd like to have on there. We've already had some great suggestions um, from people here at the conference, and so we will be working on those in the next month uh, to try to meet those needs. And, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. We're excited. Yeah, very exciting. And in your lecture yesterday, you talked about leadership, and I think what you've done with that uh, website and the whole project behind it is really show some leadership in the simulation world uh, through building those collaborations. And I think it's uh, just a wonderful thing and a tribute to yourself and the people that you're working with. So I uh, hope you have safe travels home, and thanks very much, Adam. Great. Thanks, Victoria.